Tonight, before we look into the Word of God, let me just say a word of thanks to all of you from the church here in Papillion for your gracious hospitality. We've only had a couple of meals here, but they've been fantastic. And if anyone goes to sleep tonight as a result of eating too much lasagna, I'm going to call your name out. (laughs) Would you turn with me in your Bibles tonight to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke? The 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven, give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Would you pray together with me? Our Father, it is a privilege that you have given to us to call you by that name, our Father. But we come to you as your dear children, asking you to do as a father would do, and that is to teach his children. Father, would you be gracious to us tonight? Would you open our hearts to hear and to receive the truth of your word? Father, if all we hear tonight is the voice of a man, we have wasted our time. We so much want to hear your voice. May we hear tonight what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Roman system of government and in the culture of the Roman Empire, a father exercised virtually unlimited authority over his children and over their children for as long as he was alive. One Roman writer speaking about the role of fathers recorded this observation. He said there are hardly any people who wield as much power over their sons as we do. End of quote. Fathers made the most serious decisions concerning children. Would a newborn child be reared in the family home? Or would he be sold perhaps into slavery? Would he be killed? 
How would he be punished? Perhaps he would be pawned. Would he be allowed or refused marriage or divorce? The resolution of these issues, as well as many others, concerned with the lives of even adult children, was completely within the prerogative of the Roman father. And even though at the time Jesus appeared on the earth, this picture of the Roman father was beginning to undergo change to some degree. Yet to refer to God as father required some explanation. In what sense is God our father? Is he an arbitrary and capricious father? Or is he a gentle, loving, and kind father? In this section of Luke's gospel, that continues down through verse 13, Jesus answers that question for us. Jesus began to teach his disciples how to pray by telling them to address God as our Father. That does not seem unusual to us today. We've repeated the Lord's Prayer dozens of times. We ordinarily begin our prayers with the words, Heavenly Father. But to the Jews of that day, this instruction must have been stunning. No one throughout the history of Israel had prayed like that. The Jews were so focused on the transcendence and the sovereignty of God that they were careful not even to repeat his covenant name. They invented the word, we say Yahweh, or as we would say it, Jehovah. In the Old Testament, God was referred to as Father only 14 times, usually with reference to God as the sovereign creator of man. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 6, we read the words, Is not the Lord your Father who created you, who made you and established you? The Old Testament did recognize God as the Father of Israel as a nation, Isaiah declares in 63:16, "You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name." And I suppose in that context, to some degree, the idea of Father carries much the same idea as when we refer to George Washington as the Father of our nation. But now, Jesus is going beyond. The idea of a sovereign creator. He is going beyond the idea of a father to the nation Israel. He is taking his disciples now into the idea of God as father to them individually and corporately as those who were the true Israel of God. His true followers, the true citizens of the kingdom of God. This is into the realm into which the disciples have never before gone. This is the realm to which the Apostle John referred when he recorded those very moving words to them. He gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe in his name.
the disciples' right to address God as Father, is rooted in the revelation that Jesus had very recently given of himself in chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. In those verses, we find Jesus praying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Please note that in that short text of only two verses, Jesus makes five separate references to God as the Father. And that he has chosen to reveal the Father to these disciples signals that they have been chosen by God to receive this insight. And so Jesus invites his disciples, who have already begun to look to him in trust and in obedience, to regard God as their father, as he himself did, and themselves as children of the living God. When Jesus invites the disciples to address God as father, he is identifying God as father in terms of adoption and relationship, especially a relationship within a family or a household whose head is God as the Father. And because of the idea that authentic children represent in their character the very nature of their father, the father-child relationship is restricted to those who bear the righteousness of their father. And though as noted earlier, the idea of father carries heavy connotations of authority, thus the requirement of obedience. It also, in Jesus' usage, has other connotations as well. Connotations of love, of mercy, of nurture, and of delight. And that is shown explicitly just a few verses later, when Jesus, continuing his instruction on prayer, tells his disciples to view God from the angle of a father's intimacy with and care for his children. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Brothers and sisters, what an incredible privilege we have to call God our Father. The Greek word for Father, as many of you know, has its roots in the Aramaic word Abba. We know that word particularly from the statement of Paul, that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, which then cry out in the most intimate terms, Abba. Father. The respected German scholar, Joachim Jeremiah, has argued convincingly, I think, that the word Abba was the word on Jesus' lips here in the Lord's Prayer and in all of his prayers except 
the one on the cross where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jeremiah notes that Jesus returned to the word Abba just prior to his death. Abba, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In time of judgment, God was Eloi, Eloi. In times of trust and dependence and communion, Jesus addresses God as Abba, as Father. It is, of course, that very death on the cross that brings us into this relationship with God the Father. In the counsels of the eternal covenant of redemption, the Father determined to send the Son to secure for himself a people to be called by his name. In other words, a family. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, Paul bows his knees, quote, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Psalm 22 speaks prophetically of this redemptive work of the Messiah. This psalm can be divided into two sections, before the cross and after the cross. That, of course, is that psalm that begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the first part of that psalm speaks of the suffering that the Messiah will undergo. But the dividing line is found in verse 21. There, the Messiah cries out to God for deliverance. And then he announces loudly for all to hear, you have answered me. And from that time on in that psalm, we hear no more of the pain and the suffering, the torment and the shame. Instead, we hear the voice of the resurrected and the ascended Christ announcing to the Father, having been brought triumphantly before the ancient of days, I will declare your name to my brethren. And the writer of the Hebrew, the epistle to the Hebrews observes from this verse that Christ is not ashamed to call us his brethren. The only begotten Son of God, He gave His life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might become the adopted children of God and call Him our Father. By joining joining us to call God our Father, Jesus gives us a share in His Sonship. And empowers us as his disciples to speak with God in the familiar, trusting way that a child would speak to his father here on earth. Jesus has taken the relationship with God, the father, from one of distance as creator, as father of the nation, to one of intimacy. And this understanding of the intimate relationship that we have with God should be the foundational awareness in our prayers so that as we come to God as our Father, we come with great confidence in His care 
and in his love for us. And when we do regard God in that way, it is a sign of a healthy spiritual life and a mark of authentic faith. Only those in whom the Spirit testifies that we are the children of God will have that confidence before God. Now, while we may approach God with a sense of intimacy that is expressed by the term Abba, Jesus' next words in the Lord's Prayer tells us that we cannot speak of him with an undue familiarity or a disrespect. He may be your father. He is not your old man. As a boy, I often heard some of my friends refer to their father as the old man and their mother as the old lady. I never did. Because somehow I knew that was a term of disrespect when referring to your parents. I also knew that if I used the phrase in reference to my father and he found out, I was going to be in a world of hurt. <laughs> God is our father in heaven. But he is still the transcendent God. Though he has condescended to call us his children. Jesus says his name is to be hallowed. And the name that we pray to be hallowed or to be treated as holy is the name Father. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And in Scripture, names, of course, are more than just labels. They actually have meaning. They communicate something essential or something substantive about the bearer of the name. So when we pray that God's name be hallowed, we are praying that the character and the nature of God as revealed in the name Father be given the unique reverence that it deserves. Calvin argues that the name Father deserves the greatest honor and veneration. And if we are to show honor to the name and venerate that name properly, then we must show that we trust him as a child implicitly trust his father completely and without reservation. And thus we come to him in utter dependence, trusting him with every need. And above all, we honor and we venerate his name as Father simply by coming to him. It seems so simple, and yet it is so profound. We come to him to commune with him, to fellowship with him. John writes to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Is there anything that we should desire more, anything that we should value more than being able to commune with our Heavenly Father? Have you not as pastors, in speaking to your congregations on the subject of the family, exhorted your fathers to spend time with their children. 
Have you not also seen the deleterious effect upon families where the father was absent from the home? Where the children were deprived of the presence of the father? Joy and I are now empty nesters. But we look back with fond memories of those times over the years in raising our children when we could get away from the responsibilities of home just to spend time with our children. And it's a joy to our hearts to hear them come home and say, remember when we went out to Ruggles Beach on Lake Erie? And just to know that they enjoyed being with us as their parents. I recall one night in the Allegheny Mountains of western Pennsylvania, sitting around the campfire with my son, who at that time was only about 10 or 11 years old. It was a clear, cold night in October. We had hiked almost all day long. We were tired. The campfire was warm. And the Milky Way, which you can never see from the, because of the lights of Cleveland, was brilliant overhead as we sat around that fire. And I remember sitting there beside that fire for several hours, my son close to me. We talked hardly at all. We just enjoyed being together as father and as son. Beloved, that is the privilege that we have. There is a communion we experienced that night that can only be understood between a father and a beloved child. And we have that privilege with God. If you, being earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Do you realize the implications of those three words? How much more? I delighted to be with my children. How much more does your heavenly Father delight to be with you? Isaiah 42.1 describes the Father's attitude toward His Son, the suffering servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. The great doctrine of our union with Christ teaches us that because we are united to Christ, God also delights in us. Proverbs 3.12, a verse taken up by the writer of Hebrews in reference to us as God's children, declares, For whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father the Son, in whom He delights. Perhaps my favorite verse in the Scripture in this regard comes from the ancient prophet Zephaniah. Chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The picture painted by that verse is beyond my comprehension. 
I must admit, I have great difficulty knowing my own sinfulness, grasping the idea that God could rejoice over me with singing. And perhaps because of our awareness of our sin, perhaps because of our background where grace was not understood as fully as it should have been, many of us do not experientially at least grasp this great statement that God makes concerning us as his children. And I have to admit that a good portion of my life, I lived with a sense of God as a frowning, solemn, stern, austere being. Much of my life I feared him in the sense of terror more than I loved him. I simply did not understand. Even though I was a Christian, I did not experientially at least understand the concepts of grace, of union with Christ and the other great doctrines of our salvation. Don't ever let anyone tell you that doctrine is unimportant. Oh, it's so critical that we understand these vital truths of Scripture. I needed to understand the concept of grace embodied in the parable of the prodigal son, who, when returning in repentance, declared, I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And then we hear the father declare, this my son is alive. In Jeremiah 31, 18 through 20, Ephraim laments that he is a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. God, however, weeps for him, the prophet says, as a dear son, as a pleasant child. I still can't fathom this grace, but by faith. I receive it and I rejoice that God rejoices in me. As I've come to understand more of this concept of God's delight in me because of my union with Christ, it has revolutionized my approach to my Heavenly Father. I come into His presence expecting Him to speak to my heart through his word because he delights in me because I'm in Christ. I come expecting my soul to be satisfied with that communion that I have with my heavenly father. I confess I'm not always as satisfied as I would like to be, but that has far more to do with my low expectations than it does with God my father. Occasionally I come away disappointed that I haven't experienced more of the presence of God than I have, but it only increases my longing for more of that communion with him. I find a craving within myself to come back where I can once again experience the joy of my father's delight in me. Let me turn this a bit, if I may. Sometimes it helps us to understand a concept by understanding the opposite. Can you imagine what it would be like 
if God did not delight in you. Can you imagine coming to that kind of God? Can you imagine coming into God's presence, not knowing if you were going to encounter a God who was angry, frustrated, irritated with you, or if you were going to encounter a God who was smiling, rejoicing, and happy? I don't know about you, but when I don't know what kind of a reception I'm going to get from someone, it makes me very uncomfortable, very nervous. Will that person be happy to see me? Will he ignore me because he's so preoccupied with himself and his own troubles that he doesn't want to be bothered with me? Will he be irritable and yell at me? You see, uncertainty about the father's attitude toward you as his child will hinder your communion with God. But there is no reason whatsoever to be uncertain about God's attitude toward us. He tells you plainly that he rejoices over you with singing. You are united to his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And thus he is pleased with you. This past Saturday, I was in southwest Missouri where I grew up. I was with my family celebrating my mother's 90th birthday. She's an amazing woman. I hope I'm in half as good a health when I'm 90 as she is. Very healthy, very sharp mind. And I suppose what's amazing about that is that life was not always easy for my mother. She grew up during the Great Depression. She married a farmer and then didn't see him for almost three years because he was called away to serve in World War II. As a very young boy, prior to starting school, I remember that Monday was the day that my mother did laundry. Now, with today's modern technology, you, you probably say, what's the big deal? At that time, laundry was a major inconvenience in the life of a woman. Automatic washers and dryers were still very much in the future. My mother had to go outside the house and down into the unheated cellar below our house. There was no entrance from inside our house. And then she had to do laundry for five children, herself and her husband, in the old ringer washing machine that required you to hand feed all the clothes through the ringer. I see some of you smiling. It's the older folks. <laughs> I suppose it was better than a washboard down by the river, but it was still a lot of work. After she had fed all those clothes to the ringer washer, then she had to take them outside and hang them one by one on the clothesline to dry. And it didn't matter whether the temperature was 100 degrees, as it often got in southwest Missouri, or zero, as it often got in southwest Missouri. She had to do the laundry. Consequently, on Mondays, my mother was not in the best of moods. <laughs> now, I in no way intend to speak negatively of my mother. I love her dearly. I don't know of anyone who endured what she endured who would be in a good mood on Monday if they had to do that. Nevertheless, Mondays were not the best day of the week for my mother. She was very irritable 
on Mondays, and I went out of my way on Mondays to be good. But usually I just went out of my way on Mondays to avoid my mother. I did not want to be around her when she was in an irritable mood. Now, once Tuesday came and the washing for the week was done, my mother returned to normal. And I can still remember. They say normal is a setting on a dryer. She didn't have a dryer. (laughs) But I can remember crawling up in the old rocking chair beside her or on her lap and having her read me a story. Or I would read a story to her. And that was what my heart longed for, to enjoy that kind of communion with my mother. And most days of the week were like that, but not Mondays. I hated Mondays. And I hated Mondays because what I wanted from my mother, I didn't receive on Mondays. I wanted to know that she liked having me around her. That I wasn't in her way. That I wasn't a bother to her. I wanted to know that she was pleased with me. I wanted to know that she loved me. That she delighted in me. And when she did, and when I knew that, I wanted to be around her. Brothers and sisters, there are no Mondays with God. He is never grouchy. He is never in a bad mood, nor will he ever be. How do we know that? Because he is infinitely happy. And his happiness does not depend on circumstances outside of himself. He is happy within himself. And that is the root and the ground of our happiness and our satisfaction. Why is he happy all the time? I would suggest two reasons for his happiness, and I'm sure there are infinitely more. The first reason that he is infinitely happy, that he takes delight in everything he does, is that he is sovereign. He is able to do whatever he pleases, and nothing frustrates his plans or his purposes. That is why David can say with complete confidence in Psalm 104, 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Isaiah says in 46, verses 9 and 10, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Paul asserts, or Peter asserts rather, in Acts 15 and verse 18, In the old King James Version, I love this, known unto God from eternity are all his works. And then that great verse that we love so much, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. Now, closely related to this first reason for God's happiness, that of his sovereignty, is the second, found in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, where we read of the Father accomplishing his eternal purpose by putting to death his only Son as the sacrifice for our sin. Yet it pleased the Lord. Notice the word. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
he is put into death. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge that my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. God took great pleasure in putting Christ to death for our sins. He took pleasure, the prophet says, in punishing Christ on our behalf. I don't know about you, but that is hard for me to understand. And yet it is a testimony of Scripture. How can it be? One writer has put it this way. How can God be happy and decree calamity? Consider that he has the capacity to view the world through two lenses. Through the narrow one, he is grieved and angered at sin and pain. Through the wide one, he sees evil in relation to its eternal purposes. Reality is like a mosaic. The parts may be ugly in themselves, but the whole is beautiful. While God was grieved and angry at the sin of man that caused the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, yet that very sin brought about the magnificent demonstration of the mercy and the grace of God. And so the death of Christ was the culmination of the glory of his eternal purposes. Because God was able, as the sovereign God, to fulfill his purpose, to justify many by their knowledge of the righteous servant Jesus Christ, who bore their iniquity, the Father rejoices and he is happy in his work. Paul says we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Perhaps you can begin to understand then why God rejoices over all his works and thus is infinitely happy. Unlike humans who are not sovereign, for God nothing ever goes wrong. Nothing breaks. Nothing quits working. Nothing frustrates him. And so you can be certain that when you come to him to commune with him, you will not find him grumpy or irritable. You will find him happy and rejoicing in all of his works. And thus you will not feel any need to avoid him. There's never Mondays with God. You will find that it is a pleasure and a delight to come into his presence. You will always experience his pleasure and his delight in you. We delight to commune with our Heavenly Father because he delights to commune with us as his adopted children. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 5, And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you come to the Father desiring to commune with him, you will never be disappointed. He has given you his Holy Spirit as the first fruits, the down payment 
upon that ultimate experience of his great love and joy inexpressible and full of glory, which is part of our future inheritance. Have you ever longed to be in a relationship where you experience the reality of the love of another person? You long to be with someone who loves you and who accepts you. You long to meet with a warm response and not have that other person ignore you. You want to be received into their presence and to know that he or she delights in you. Think of when you first fell in love. Think of the delight that you experienced in that relationship. Think of the joy of being in the presence of that one you loved and from whom you experienced that love. That is what it means to commune with God as our Father. In short, we, we long for what Adam experienced before the fall. We long for that kind of communion with God. Brothers, God invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find mercy. He invites us to enter into the holiest place through the blood of Jesus. And consequently, we read then the psalm of David, who could but look forward in faith to the blood of Jesus. And we find him saying in Psalm 5, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning, I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Brothers and sisters, if David, prior to the cross of Christ, could make that assertion, how much more privileged are we to make it as we look back at the cross of Christ, as we know the realities of what the cross of Christ has done for us? Matthew Henry, in his little book, Directions for Daily Communion with God, a book that I highly recommend, as well as Owen's On Communion with God, and there's so many others. But Matthew Henry notes that this statement of David, my voice you shall hear in the morning, may be understood in two different ways. It may be understood as the language of faith, grounded in the promise of God, the confidence that, that the Father's ear is always open to the voice of his child. And though our voice may be feeble, though our voice may be weak, yet God will hear our voice. Henry says he will hear with pleasure. It is his delight. And he will return a gracious answer. Whatever we ask of God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, the mediator, according to the will of God revealed in Scripture, it shall be granted to us either in kind or in kindness. So the promise is, and the truth of it is sealed by the concurrent experience of the saints of all ages, that Jacob's God never said to Jacob's seed, seek me in vain, and he will not begin now. Brothers and sisters, the Father invites us to come to him, to commune with him in the confidence that no matter how great the distance 
between heaven and earth, no matter how unworthy we feel, no matter how little we understand of his marvelous grace, he hears our voice. He will not turn his face away from us. Matthew Henry says God is more willing to be prayed to, more ready to hear prayer than we are to pray. This phrase may also be taken, Matthew Henry says, as a resolution on our part to commune with the Father in the way that he has appointed. We resolve that not a day shall pass, but that the Heavenly Father shall hear our voice. And it is not merely the physical voice that God desires to hear. We do not simply come to him with vain repetition of words or with empty words. But prayer is the pouring out of our heart to God. The lifting up of our soul 